There is no question. Jesus lived and died. The question is whether he died, then lived. Is it possible the accounts of the resurrection are all lies? If so, why would the disciples make it up? Let's imagine how it might have happened. Oh, hello. My name's Matthew. You might know me from famous stories such as Matthew is called as a disciple and Matthew runs away. Um, I actually didn't see you at first because I was so busy working on a story. Uh, You see, I've kind of got a problem. Our Savior, or who we thought was our Savior, Jesus, um, died. And he died uh, a few years ago. And since then, the movement has kind of struggled. People are a little bit confused. Uh, They're a little listless. I think they're a little uninspired because of the way the story ended. And so I had this idea that maybe I could go back and and write a few things down uh, from my memory. And I thought maybe a few creative tweaks might help to inspire those that are, are still left believing. Uh, I think I can kind of pump the story up a little bit and make this a little bit more exciting. I'm sure you've got questions. Uh, how can I possibly change a story um, that I'm going to tell to everybody who already knows what happened? Um, why would a devout Jew make up stories about a dead convict being God? Um, why am I writing with a feather? These are all good questions. Um, I spent three years with Jesus, and in that time I learned a tremendous amount. He taught me about integrity and sacrifice and love and honesty. And I intend to honor those three years in any way I can, even if that means lying to everybody I know about everything I've ever believed. So I'm working right now on how to start the story, and I thought I would start off by talking about when Jesus was baptized. He was baptized by his cousin, John. That's another dead convict. And in that baptism, you know, I think about it as I'm saying this out loud, that sounds a little odd, Jesus being baptized, because it sounds like he had something that needed to be forgiven. I might have to actually kind of maybe edit that, help me remember to do that. Um, that might cause some people to, to doubt his greatness. You know, now that I'm reading it through, I realize there's another part where John basically says, uh, I'm not sure if this is the guy. Uh, that doesn't sound right at all. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to change that. I would be an idiot for leaving that in. In fact, I'm a, I'm an idiot for putting that in there in the first place. I'm sorry about that. Let me get rid of that. Um, if I can get this right, I mean, it's possible I could get a world religion started. So I need to. I need to make this just right. You know, I'll tell you what. I'll skip to the most important part that needs to get fixed, and I could use your help on this: the execution of Jesus. So, I need to find. You know, it would, it would have been helpful if I had numbered all these sentences. Um, somewhere here, I have that he was captured, and he was tried, and he was sentenced to crucifixion. I was going to describe him as, as carrying the weight of the world, of all of our sins on his shoulders. I thought that would kind of give this whole thing more of a sense of purpose. Uh, then he does that. As I remember, he fell down. He was too weak to complete the job. And so some some random Jewish guy came up, picked up the cross, and carried it up the hill for him. That doesn't feel right. Actually, that's really stupid. I'm going to change that in the final draft. No, no, no. Uh, Let's see. Then later on the cross, I have that he says, he calls out. He called out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 
It was such a hopeless, sad moment. Don't, don't even say it. Gone. Okay. So the body was taken down, and it was buried. It was taken by Joseph of Arimathea, if I remember correctly. Actually, now that I think about it, he's from the Sanhedrin, and that's not going to work at all. I'm going to change that to, I'm going to have one of the disciples ask for the body, make it sound brave. I, maybe, maybe I'll say me. I'm only in here once. Uh, actually, we all know who it needs to be. It's, it's going to be John, the disciple who Jesus loved. So I'll make that change. So here's the tough part. He's buried. Game's over. That's kind of the end of my story. And that's why we're struggling. And so I was trying to think, how can I fix this? Here's my idea. I'm going to say that I had a vision. I had a vision where I saw Jesus sitting at God's right hand. This is amazing because I don't need any proof. It requires no evidence. It vindicates Jesus completely. It makes God look like he came through. It makes us understand why he died. And it will be a tremendous encouragement for his followers. Uh, that's, it's actually amazing. And it fits with our understanding of how death and the afterlife works, that Jesus would be in heaven with, with God. This is, this is amazing. I love it. No. It's too easy. Now's the time for Crazy. And I'm going to go for crazy. I'm going to say that he is risen from the dead. I mean, it's never happened before. Nobody's expecting it. It's ridiculous. It doesn't fit with our faith. It's not what anybody believes. It's unprecedented. I can't imagine a better way to start a new world religion. It's perfect. Now, I have to make it very believable. I need details. Uh, I've got it. I'm going to say it happened when no one could see it. It was the middle of the night. Jesus was in a sealed stone room, and that's when he transformed. There were no eyewitnesses at all. What better way to convince everyone of something incredible than to say that nobody saw it? I love it. It's perfect. I am so the rock. Sorry, Peter. Now, how do we find out about it then? This is critical. This has to be... This has to be airtight. You know what I'll do? I'm going to say that women saw him first. Of course, it's perfect because women are completely unreliable. Their testimony is not acceptable in a court of law. Why wouldn't I have them be the first witnesses? I will hinge my entire story on not just women, poor, distraught, outcast. It's perfect. Even better, I think what I'll say, I think I'll say that they found him very early in the morning while it was still a little dark, in the middle of a cemetery. That way they're sleepy, scared, and sad, all at the same time. That's perfect. I'll say that the women themselves didn't even believe it was Jesus when they saw him, so my eyewitnesses don't believe their own story. It's fantastic, I love it. All I need now is to come up with a couple of names for these ladies, okay. Stay calm. This is perfect. I've got to make it very believable. Let me see. The first one, I'm going to call Mary. Mary. It's perfect. The other one, I will call, I mean, I can name her anything. I'm making this up. Uh, The other Mary. (laughs) 
I am a natural at this. Now, I just need to balance this little miracle out with maybe a miraculous birth narrative where everything gets started. So I'll, I'll start with Jesus having a mother. What will I name her? Okay, I'm not Matthew anymore. So I hope that you see the point there. Um, The Gospels really pass our common sense test. And I think we should rely and trust in our common sense. Uh, If the Gospels were made up as a lie to try to convince us that Jesus was the Son of God, they were terrible. They were terrible at it. Um, I think that if we look at it with a, with a fair eye, we would say that they're actually very credible eyewitness testimonies. I think another thing that, that you notice when you read the Gospels is all four of them mention an empty tomb. Uh, this is really important because the Gospel accounts, uh, the resurrection stories begin in Jerusalem, and that is the city that had the empty tomb. It would be impossible, really, to start a story like this uh, the way we did, it would be impossible to do that in the same city if there, was a, if there was a tomb with a body in it. Because you know the first thing they would do is they would just roll the stone away and they would produce the body and they would end this whole idea. Um, but that doesn't happen. You might say, well, maybe that's because there was no tomb at all. Maybe the Romans took the body and this entire thing is invented. Problem with that is, again, you're stuck with uh, the idea that these people invented a story out of whole cloth that everybody knew wasn't true. And that's really hard to do. On top of that, all four Gospels mention Joseph of Arimathea by name. And you think, well, that's a, that's a small point. But he's, he would be a famous guy. He's in the Sanhedrin, one of the 70 ruling elders. You can't make up a story like that about a man and have four people do it. And nobody question, wait a minute, I don't, I don't actually think that happened, especially if you were in Joseph's family. Uh, and you were, you were saying that he did that. So if you, if you take those two things, this, this, I think, really reasonable eyewitness testimony, and you combine it with an empty tomb, and the, t- the tomb, you know, another reason that I, I think the empty tomb is a really solid uh, piece of evidence is there's no, there's no alternative story that's floating around out there. It would be one thing if we heard this, this parallel track of people saying, no, 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 the Romans took the body. But there's no story. The only other story we hear from as, from as old as the Gospels is that the disciples stole the body. Matthew mentions that. But that story, whether you believe it or not, assumes an empty tomb. So in either case, we have an empty tomb and we have reliable eyewitness uh, testimony. Typically, that's where resurrection proofs kind of end. And so I kind of wanted to start there. We've all, I think, walked through this before where we said, well, um, you've got people who are telling the truth. It's pretty clear that the evidence, that, that the testimony they're giving is, is accurate. And we've got an empty tomb. So we, we kind of we stop there. But I want to actually start there and move on and, and talk a little bit about what might be lacking in that explanation of the resurrection. And the first thing that I hear all the time when I talk to people about this is there's no scientific proof at all for the resurrection. There's nothing you can observe. There's nothing you can test. There's nothing you can experiment. There's nothing you can replicate. And, you know, the response to that is that's true. There is no scientific proof. Um, Unless we get sort of a miracle through the Shroud of Turin, there's never going to be scientific proof in the resurrection. But uh, I think that's the wrong standard. 
what we really want to talk about is historical proof, because scientific proof wouldn't prove that Caesar ever crossed the Rubicon or that William Shakespeare wrote King Lear. So when it comes to one-of-a-kind events in history, science is kind of an unfair uh, standard to hold. We really want to look at, at history. And when it comes to that, I think a good, I think a good example would be black holes, and, and is an example of how you would how you'd perceive something from the, from the standpoint of science. So when you, when you look at black holes, we say to ourselves, well, there's something that's completely unobservable, right? Nobody's ever seen a black hole. But we know that they exist. We can verify their existence because we see how they interact with their environment. They, they bend light and they change the fields of gravity. And so we can perceive their existence even though we can't see them. And so it's by their effect on the environment that we know and we can confirm through science that they exist. They are an incredible explanation because I think all of us, when black holes were first explained, we all probably said, I don't quite get that. But it's the best explanation for the facts at hand. And so we, okay, we said we accept that. So that's how science works. When it comes to something like the French Revolution, what caused it? Well, you wouldn't go to a scientist. You wouldn't go to a chemist or a physicist and say, help me understand how this happened. Let's try to replicate it. Instead, you'd go to history. You'd look at documents. You'd look at political cartoons. You might interview people if it wasn't too long after the fact. And you would try to understand what caused it. So if we took that same approach to the resurrection, we would go to the documents. And most of those documents have been collected into what we as Christians call the New Testament. And we would look at those documents and we would say, is there anything we can find here that tells us anything about the resurrection? When you look at the documents, I think the first thing that kind of pops out, if you sort of read them all at once, the first thing that pops out is how much disagreement there is. Um, they disagreed about everything. They disagreed about dietary laws, uh, this is actually really, I got this from one letter. Circumcision, the role of women, whether uh, you should marry, how to take the Lord's Supper, whether Gentiles should be in the temple or not, the role that Jews plays in, in these end times, should we eat idol meat, um, what are spiritual gifts and how should they be used, uh, should we be speaking in tongues, is that valid? How do we handle charity and tithing between believers and non-believers, people we've never met? What's the role of work in this strange time we're living in after Jesus has died but before he comes back? What's happened or what will happen to people who've died already waiting for Jesus to come back? And speaking of that, when will Jesus come back? What is the second coming? The, the New Testament documents are chock full of disagreement. Um, that doesn't mean they're inconsistent. But there's a, they express a lot of disagreement. You hear Paul spending a lot of his time sort of arguing points. I think the reason for that is because there's a lot of things where Jesus left his disciples hanging. Right? There's a lot of things that he didn't cover. He was talking to people in his time, and he didn't, he didn't really cover issues specifically like circumcision. He didn't give specific instructions like they might have liked. And I'll give you an example of this is with dietary laws. When you read Peter and Paul and James, you see that there's a lot of time spent trying to figure out this question. If I'm a new Christian, do I have to abide by these old dietary laws? Because that would be a real bummer. And there's a lot of people who are bringing people into the Christian faith that would really like to not have this hurdle in front of them, although they feel compelled to follow these laws themselves. And so they're kind of stuck. If you look at Mark chapter 7, he actually talks about this. Uh, he mentions a time when Jesus said, it's whatever comes out of your mouth that defiles you, not what goes in. And you see how Mark 
finish that statement by putting a little parenthetical, thus he declared all foods unclean. You can see that Mark, in his time, a few decades after Jesus, in his community, this was a big deal, and he's trying to add clarification. And Mark very much wants to clarify this so we can end the disagreement. And I think Mark is right in what he's saying, and I think he had a lot of confidence in this. And I think it would be very easy for Mark to simply put those words in Jesus' mouth, but he doesn't. Instead, he sort of sets it aside. And we could go to Matthew 15, where this same passage is quoted. I think Matthew actually uses Mark as a source. He uses the same words. The only thing he doesn't include is this parenthetical statement. Matthew cuts it out. I think what Matthew was thinking is, we don't, this is not the gospel of Mark's word. It's Jesus' word. So he just knocks it out. So you think for these guys that are living in these communities that are so you know, embroiled with disagreements over all these issues... And they're writing down these uh, reminiscences of Jesus. And they feel that they do not have the freedom to say something that they know so surely is true. But they feel like they can't do it. And it's these same guys that we say, well, maybe they made up the resurrection. Maybe they put it all in there to make them feel better. And that doesn't really, that doesn't really pass the test uh, when we think about that critically. If they were willing to make up a resurrection, why would they be so scrupulous about all these other areas? So the disagreements in the New Testament, I think, actually point to the gospels not being tampered with. I think that gives us a lot of assurance that what we're reading there is is pretty airtight in terms of what Jesus said. But we can flip it. We can say, okay, well, that's what the disagreements tell us. What about places where they agree? What I find interesting about where the, the uh, New Testament writers agree is there's three areas I want to talk about where they seem to be in surprising agreement, uh, an agreement that's, I think, very hard to explain. There's three of them. The first is this change in the Sabbath. So you guys know that the Sabbath, by the time Jesus was alive, the Sabbath is a, is a 1,500-year tradition. It's based on God's direct command to them that's retained in the fourth commandment. Um, It was so important that people were stoned for breaking the Sabbath. It's recorded in the Old Testament. And that was still true in the day of Jesus because we know that Jesus was constantly running into this issue. He would do something as insignificant as pick a piece of grain or something as compassionate as healing a man who was born lame. And you guys remember the first thing that people would ask him? Did you do that on the Sabbath? Did you, did you do that on the Sabbath? So this Sabbath uh, sort of marked the Jews out. right? It's one of the ways that they said, us, them. And it was important, and it was a matter of pride for every Jew. And that's why that Sabbath was, was so hard to let go of as one of the old laws. And why stoning was the, was the um, remedy when somebody broke it. Now look at Peter. So Peter, after Jesus died, Peter gets this vision, right, of the blanket coming down and there's animals on it and he hears a voice saying, kill and eat. And even after that, and even after all the things that Jesus said about it's only what comes out of your mouth that's unclean, remember he struggled to sit down with Jews and Gentiles together. This was something that he struggled to let go of because he couldn't let go of, of the old ways. But at the same time, Peter never expresses any problem with changing the Sabbath, completely eliminating all the legal ramifications of breaking the Sabbath. There's no more stoning somebody if they do it, and switching the day. And that happens immediately after Jesus dies. And there's really 
no disagreement. There's no record of really anybody debating this, this 1,500-year tradition shift in the weeks after Jesus' death. And so you have to ask yourself, for people that are so stuck in their ways, that just can't let go of these traditions, even despite of what Jesus says, why is it that they can take the Sabbath, which is, I think, this, probably the second most important marker of their faith, and they just completely jettison it, just like that? What would cause that? I said it's their second most important because I want to talk about their most important with the, with the second area of agreement, and that's the redefinition of monotheism. So monotheism, this is what made a Jew a Jew. If you traveled around as a Jew, you encountered people who believed in many gods, but not you. You believed in one unseen God, and you had no image of him. And that made you very different. And sometimes I'm sure that was hard, but sometimes, again, it was a point of pride. And while the Sabbath was, was codified in the fourth commandment, this one has actually the first two, so it's huge. You have no other gods before me, and you'll have no idols. There's even in Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema is a, is a famous um, Old Testament quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's about 30 Old Testament scripture passages that reaffirm this, the oneness, the unique oneness of God. Um, Scott Holly talked about last week how Jesus quoted I am, and he got people so upset. And you think about that, well, God describes himself as I am. He doesn't say we are. You know, he's, he's a single unity of person. Jesus comes along, and he is executed for violating this commandment. So we can't say, well, maybe it wasn't so important in Jesus' day. It got him killed. Just after Jesus' death, his disciples start writing letters, including Paul. And Paul, in these letters, one of the reasons he's writing these letters is to argue with his church. And I, I use that word in the, in the right way, meaning he's debating with them you know, about speaking in tongues, eating idol meat, uh, circumcision. But in the midst of those letters, he sort of makes these casual, almost casual statements. In Philippians 2, he says, Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God. In Colossians 2, he says, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells. And in Romans 9, 5, he says, Christ, who is God over all. Now, these are just affirmations that Paul is making. He's not trying to win an argument. This is just like, before I get to the argument, let me just kind of state what we all agree. It's incredible to, incredible to me that these are the things that Paul just assumes to be true with the people he's speaking to. They're going to argue over circumcision. They're going to argue over dietary laws. But we all accept that God and Jesus are one and the same. He never feels the need to defend these points. Um, if you think about James... I think James is an amazing example here. So James is the guy who at the Council of Jerusalem, if you've read this in Acts, they're trying to figure out how to, how to sort of go out to, to um, pagans, uh, Gentiles, and they think, how many of these old laws do we have to carry forward and, and shackle them to? And Peter's really saying, none. And Paul would say the same. James struggled with that, and so they came up with a little bit of a compromise. For James, was, you know, there's a couple things that wouldn't be so hard if, if everybody would do. And one of them is don't eat meat that's from a strangled animal. You know, he just, he just struggles to let go of that. That's just part of his heritage. So he can write something like that and send it out to all the churches. But at the same time, he calls his little brother 
Lord and God. And I, I would just invite everybody to just stop and think for a minute. What would have to happen in your life for you to call one of your siblings God? What would that take? Because whatever that is, that happened to James. The third strange agreement that I see in the New Testament is a centralization of the resurrection. And by centralization, what I mean is that when you look back in the Old Testament, like the passage that Daryl quoted when we opened, you see the, revel- the, the resurrection, the idea of resurrection being hinted at. But if you look at the Old Testament in total, it's, it's not mentioned as often as it is, obviously, in the New Testament. It's a, it's a tertiary idea. There's this central idea that God is going to restore his kingdom, that he's going to defeat the pagans, uh, that there's going to be this, this redemption of his people. But the idea of resurrection is something that's sort of progressively revealed, and it's a little foggy. You've got some passages like Ezekiel 37 that, you know, talking about the dry bones. You're not sure, is that a metaphorical hope or is he actually saying we're going to be flesh and bones? And you've got passages like 2 Maccabees that say, yeah, you're going to come back as flesh and bone. But then you've got a lot of other passages where people just die and they're just dead. And it it just seems like that's it. By the time Jesus came around, not much had changed in this, right? There's still a lot of disagreement. You've got Sadducees who say there's no resurrection, you're dead, it's over. And then you've got the Pharisees who say, oh no, there's absolutely a physical resurrection at the end of time when God returns to restore his kingdom, he is going to restore his people as well and he's going to raise us all up together to a resurrection. So you've got a very broad understanding of what the resurrection means. But even those people who believed in the resurrection all believed this is a one-time event outside of time, right? It's a corporate event. There's no understanding, there's no conception, there's no idea that it might happen in time to a single person. That idea was so foreign to them that I think it's a stumbling block to us when we read the Gospels. Because we read in the Gospels where Jesus will say to his disciples, uh, I'm going to die, I'm going to go into the grave for three days, and then I'm going to rise again. And what's the disciples' response? Huh? I don't understand. Well, how clear could he be? I mean, he could draw you a picture. He, he says over and over, and they keep saying, I don't understand. I don't understand. And for us, we think, gosh, are these guys so stupid? That's because we come from a, a totally different frame of reference. We understand exactly what it means for someone to die and rise again in the middle of time. They just didn't. They weren't expecting it. There was no expectation at all. If you think about it, when um, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, all the things the crowds were shouting. Nobody said, oh my gosh, the resurrection just started. That was nobody's idea. That's just not what they thought. They thought he's alive again. He's going to die, but he's alive now. And we know that's true because they plotted to kill him. So they knew that he wasn't resurrected in a new, in a new way. The only person who mentions resurrection is Jesus himself. So in that context, though, Again, if you go back to the, the historical documents, you've got the early church that does two very strange things with that. One, everybody says that there's going to be a physical resurrection now. That's not the debate anymore. It's, there's virtually no debate on whether the resurrection is physical. And what there's certainly no debate on is whether that resurrection itself is central. It's sort of like it sort of moves into the center of the faith. I hear a lot of times when I'm talking, especially younger people, will they'll say, well, I mean... Isn't it 
possible that after Jesus died, that this faith started to gain momentum. And they realized they sort of had to get out ahead of it. And they started to kind of ascribe a divinity to Jesus. And when you do that, you have to come up with divine events. And one of them would be a natural, would be having rise from the dead. It's in fulfillment of all of our hopes and like points us forward. It's, it's amazing. And so you see that as like a culmination of maybe decades, maybe even a century of people thinking this through. And then it gets sort of written back into the Gospels. Isn't that possible? And on the one hand, you say, actually, that's, that's, that's good reasoning, Right? You've taken something that's totally unbelievable and you've figured out a way that they could, have, they could have sort of rationalized that. The problem is, is that it completely ignores every bit of evidence that we have uh, available to us. Specifically, when you look at the very earliest documents, uh, again, would be Paul's letters written about 15 years after Jesus died. Paul, have you guys noticed this? He doesn't really talk a lot about Jesus' life. He doesn't talk about him walking on water. He doesn't talk about him uh, talk about him like breaking up the loaves and the fishes. He never quotes his parables. He never quotes like famous. There's a couple of times where he says things that that remind us of what Jesus said, and we think, I think he's quoting Jesus, but I'm not sure if he's actually if he realizes he's doing it or not. There's a couple of those, but he seems to not be terribly focused on the life of Jesus. What is he focused on? Well, a couple of times he mentions the Lord's Supper as he kind of walks through that. But other than that, over and over and over, Paul talks about the death and resurrection of Christ. Christ died, Christ risen. That is all he talks about. And as a matter of fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In chapter 15 of the same letter, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's all we really know about Jesus in the earliest letters. Everything else that we know came later. So in the gospels that were written relatively later, you know, late 50s up to, up to maybe the end of the century, uh, we hear about his birth, all the things that he said, the parables that he told, the miracles that he did. You could take any one of those away. The, the feeding of the 5,000, um, you could take away any one of his parables, the parable of the prodigal son, wipe them away from the historical record, and you don't have to change a thing in Paul's letters. They'd stand up perfectly. But if you just eliminate the resurrection, every single one of Paul's letters just completely collapses. Everything that Paul talks about is based on the resurrection. And that makes sense if we take him at his word. Paul says that he met the resurrected Christ in 15, uh, the rest of that verse he says, he appeared to Peter, Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul has a, a unique experience here. The resurrected Christ is the only Christ he knows. That's different for Peter, James, and John. They know the pre-resurrected Christ. They know the post-resurrected Christ. They probably know the pre-resurrected Christ better. But all Paul knows is resurrected Christ. All Paul talks about is resurrected Christ. Now, when you read Paul's letters, you would ask yourself, What's the sense I get from this guy? Intelligent? Yes. 
Persuasive, very much so. Uh, a little stubborn, yes. Prickly, maybe, yes. Uh, liar. Does he strike you as a liar? He does not strike me as, as having much deceit in him when he says these things. For Paul, resurrection is not something he's built on top of a faith that he has in Jesus. His faith in Jesus is built on top of the resurrection. The resurrection is the foundation of the Christian faith for Paul. The resurrection didn't come later, sort of built on. Everything else came later, the parables, the miracle stories. That's all later for Paul. First is the resurrection. So it's really impossible to say maybe the resurrection sort of developed over time. You have to accept, based on all the evidence, not, not a selective amount of it, that the resurrection was the first thing people believed about Jesus. And then you have to try to decide why that could be. What could cause a group of people to take a, an idea of resurrection that was pretty vaguely understood. Does it happen, doesn't it? Um, what's it like when it happens? Is it physical or is it spiritual? And to take that tertiary idea and pull it into the center of their faith and have it so clearly understood. Paul understood resurrection so clearly that not only does he talk about it extensively, especially in 1 Corinthians, he actually uses resurrection to... to help us understand other concepts. So he uses it metaphorically. So it's, it's clearly understood. And this all happened in a matter of weeks and then years after Jesus died. So you've got this redefinition of monotheism. You've got a centralization of the resurrection and a change in the Sabbath day. And you have to ask yourself, what could cause all those things to happen, which are so radical and, and to happen so quickly? One option Jesus described himself as God. He appeared to many people in his risen state, and he did that first on a Sunday morning. Now, to me, that is the best explanation for what we see when we look at, at the world around Jesus. If we go back to black holes for a minute, Well, you know, this is really a historical discussion. I know black holes, we said it's scientific. I think they still apply. Black holes, they defy our understanding of how the world works. They, they defy our common sense. When, when we read about them in science, we say, this, is, this feels like it's breaking natural laws, how they behave when they, when they pull light in, when nothing can escape. But we accept that they're true. Because when we're presented with all the evidence, well, here's how it affects the world around them. We say, well, it's unbelievable. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. But I accept it because it's the best explanation for what I see. I would apply that same standard to the resurrection. I would say that the resurrection, just like black holes, is something that we can, we can infer by its effects on the world around it, even though we can't see it, just like we can't see the black hole. We do see how, though, it shapes the world around it, how it curved and bent the idea of monotheism and shaped the way they treat the Sabbath and changed the very idea of what resurrection itself means. We see its effects on the world around it, and so we say, even though I can't see it, it and it's unbelievable, it is the best explanation. So if that's true, then the question would be, well, then why do we struggle so much with it? Because I accepted black holes no problem. It was crazy. But you know what? It's in my science book. Why would a science book lie? Okay. You know, take the test move on. I haven't thought about it since. But the resurrection, we hold to a, a little bit different of a standard. 
right? When we see that that's um, defended in testimony in Scripture, we say, well, I mean, we almost treat Scripture like it's the testimony of a hostile witness, a compulsive liar, somebody that's, you know, guilty until proven innocent. And I'm not sure why we have that, that double standard, but I think I, I, I thought of two reasons beyond just it's unbelievable, but I don't think that that's enough. I think one of the reasons that we struggle to accept the resurrection is that it makes such strong demands on us if we do. Um, Tom Werner talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that sometimes messages that seem very clear sort of we let get lost in transmission because we don't want to hear it. I think this is a case where that may be. If we are very, very confident in the resurrection, if that sort of informs our understanding of how the world works, that starts to make some pretty radical demands on, on how we think, um, how we look at other people, you know, sort of as eternal beings, um, how we handle our actions, where we put our resources, where we, where we uh, sort of like focus our attentions. It is not irrational to believe in the resurrection. That's just an extraordinary hypothesis that best fits the events that are being described. That's not irrational. Here's what's irrational, is to say, I don't believe something is true because I don't want it to be true. That's irrational thinking. A second reason, though, that uh, you might say I I struggle to believe the resurrection isn't because um, it makes demands on us. It's because it just feels too good to be true. So you could be at the other end of the spectrum. I think all of us have been the victim of a broken promise you know, at one time or another, especially if somebody makes ridiculous promises. Um, you know, imagine if you heard somebody in your family say, yeah, I think next year we're going we're gonna to all, we're going to take a trip around the world. It's on me. We'll figure it out. I'll pay for it. Boy, you sure want that to be true. Just to be out of school or out of work for the year would be amazing. But there's a part of you that would kind of hold back, I think. You'd say, you know, I hope that's true. I want that to be true. But I'm going to hold back a part of my heart on that. Because if I invest all in in these crazy promises that somebody makes, it's very possible that my heart will get very, very broken in a way that hurts very, very much. It's also possible I'll look like a fool. And I think for all of us, we're willing to look like a fool when we're young one or two times. And then we sort of start to guard ourselves on what we, what we, how we react when people make amazing promises. And so I think we kind of treat the resurrection promises the same way. And this is really, to me, where faith comes in. So for me, faith is not, well, if you want to believe in the resurrection, you just have to accept that there's really no evidence for it, and you have to have faith. And if you have faith, well, then you're a good boy or girl. I don't have much patience for that. But I do think where you need faith is if, if God has made this promise, and it's a promise that has a basis that you can believe in, it takes a certain amount of faith to put your trust in him that he's not going to break your heart on that promise. He's not going to let you down. He's not going to make a fool out of you for believing it. So what if it is true? What are the implications if the resurrection actually happened? Tom talked about this on Easter, and I thought he did a really nice job. And so I just want to touch on three quick things before we close. One kind of obvious one, if the resurrection happened, then everything that Jesus said is true. Everything he said has to be true. He, he really is the son of God come in the flesh. He really did come to take away the sins of the world. Um, we heard on Good Friday how he on the cross said, it is finished, meaning it's, the price has been paid. I think the resurrection 
is God's amen to that statement. That is God saying, yes, it's true. It is finished. And that's why that sacrifice has been accepted. Jesus is going to return in glory, and we are going to have eternal life with him. Um, That sounds so crazily true, so wonderful, that it's almost hard to say. But that is what it means. A second thing that the resurrection means is that it would tell us how God feels about his creation. Jesus died a physical death after living a physical life, and he rose in a physical body. And that means he's redeeming a physical world. It's not just spiritual. And I think if you really believe that, it helps to explain why these visions of heaven that we had when we were little, at least the way it was explained to me, there's a little cloud, you're a precious moments kid on that cloud, (laughs) and you might have a harp or whatever, and that's your thing. You know, enjoy a couple of millennia. Um, When I was a kid, that sounded so horrible. And I felt like I wasn't allowed to say that, because if you do, there's something wrong with you, there's something broken. I was like, but I'd rather stay here and play, you know. Um, but now I understand that that, that vision, that is, that's not what we're made for. Um, that vision sort of assumes that we are, we're sort of like just software, and there's hardware that we came with, but when we die, the hardware gets disposed of, and the software sort of goes up into the cloud, and that's where we live on forever. Uh, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's our destiny. Destiny. I think, I think when somebody says, you know, you're a, you're a soul who has a body, I would say it's not that you, you have a body. You are a body. That is simply as much a part of you as your, as your soul is. Um, the hardware and the software are both important is what the resurrection is telling us. Um, and the software is made to be with the hardware. Now, they're going to be temporarily separated for some of us If we die before Jesus comes back, they'll be separated, but they will be put back together because hardware and software are made for each other and they belong together. It's sort of like an Apple universe. That's how we're made to be, right? It's supposed to work together all the time. And and when that happens, there'll be no more system updates. I mean, it'll always always just work. Um, God cares so much about this physical world that he was willing to die for it. So I think what that tells us, if there are things that we care very much about in this physical world, that's, that's a good thing. So it could be things like if you spend your time trying to alleviate the physical needs of other people, maybe it's a homeless person that you're trying to help, maybe it's uh, immunization, maybe it's hunger, God blesses you in all of those things because you're taking care of the physical world. If you care about climate change, uh, if you care about environmental preservation, Uh, conservation. God blesses you for that because you're caring for this physical world that he was willing to die for. If you just like to run, if you like to read, if you just like to rest, I'm a fan of resting. Uh, If you like those things, you can feel good about those things feeling good because that's what you were made to do. You were doing what you were created for. The last thing, it reminds us that the impossible is possible. So we're standing in the old world, right? This is the old world. We know we've been promised this new world. And we're standing in this old world, and we're saying, impossible. It's just not possible. When we look into the new world and we see, because Jesus gave us, gave us a little peek into it, and he did things like he just made people's sicknesses just go away. 
and he made their death just stop being death. And we look at that and we say, that's not possible. Well, we're right. In, in these old rules that we're operating in, it is impossible. But we do have just like a, just a toehold now in the new world. Jesus made that possible by what he did. And so we do feel little hints of this new world is coming. We feel it, I think, especially with the Holy Spirit in our hearts when we can love somebody, maybe in a way that it wasn't possible to love before, or to care about somebody in a way it wasn't possible to care before, or to forgive somebody in a way that it didn't feel possible to forgive before. We're doing impossible things in the old world, but they're possible in the new. And maybe we're even experiencing little miracles that are courtesy of the new world. One day, I believe, when Jesus returns, we won't have one little toe in this new world. We'll have both feet firmly planted. And what's funny about that is when we're there, I think we'll look back into the old world and we'll still be saying, impossible. But what we'll be looking back at is we'll be seeing children who are suffering, right? Or people who are born blind. And we'll say, that's just not possible. And dead people simply don't stay dead in this new world, thank God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, first for making yourself known to us. Whether we have ever read a Bible, you have made yourself evident and you have given us the ability to perceive you. And I thank you for that. I thank you also that you did not leave with that, but you knew our nature, that we would not run to you even when you revealed yourself, that we would run away. And so, I, God, I thank you that you pursued us. I thank you that you revealed your nature, your love, your plan, first through Scripture and then through your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for all the things that he showed us and told us. I thank you especially that he was willing to go to the cross to suffer and to die, to pay for the sins that we've accumulated. I thank you today especially that he rose from the dead as a way of saying those sins are paid. Um, I thank you, Lord, that we were once dead and now we're alive, we're lost, but we are found. We were chained to sin, but now we are anchored to Christ. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.